Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You'd open up your Bibles and take out your swords, get ready for what the Lord has for us. Matthew chapter 19 will be our destination. We've been there a little bit. Another hard saying is found in there. And we're now turning our attention to a very specific part of chapter 19, uh, verses 16, uh, really to verse 37, uh, or excuse me, to verse 22. And as we think on this next hard saying, the question again needs to be asked, why is this hard? Why, why is it? Well, notice verse 16, and now behold, one came to him and said, good teacher, good teacher, we know you're good, we know you're a teacher, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now I want you to stop for just a second and probably a vast majority of you in here at some point in time during your life had this very particular thing that was an issue for you. What good thing do I have to do so that I can be saved? What do I have to do? What is it? What work is it? Do I have to give? Do I have to be a missionary? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to read my Bible? What You see, there are a lot of good things that good people can do, and some people get so confused as to think the doing of the good deeds is the thing that actually saves them. And yet the Bible is very clear that the heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked, and who could know it? We're saved by grace and through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any of us should boast about what we do. What Christ did on the cross, which we'll celebrate this morning at the end of our time in the Word, is the only thing that ever saves anyone. It's not what you do, it's what he did. And so Jesus is now going to take a very hard saying that some people really struggle with, especially in our world. Be ye broke. I know, I'll just give away everything. And of course, God's going to accept me into heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you that all of these hard sayings None of them are too hard for you. And so we pray that as we open your word, that you would open our eyes of understanding, our ears to hear. Lord, help us to know your good, your perfect will, your plans for our lives. And so we give you this time in your word, pray that you'd speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick up verse 16 again. And now behold, one came to him and said, good teacher... What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? 
And so he said to him, so Jesus begins to speak. First and foremost, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. And so he's questioning what this rich young ruler actually thinks about who Jesus is. Very important part of this particular hard saying. Because who you think Jesus is directly affects what you think about him. If you think Jesus is just a good teacher, you're in trouble. If you think Jesus is simply a prophet, you're in trouble. If you just think Jesus is a good man, you're in trouble. And so Jesus squares that away and says there's only one good, that's God, and that's who I am. Jesus is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And so Jesus is going to deconstruct his thinking. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he adds the second of what we would call the great commandment or the greatest commandment, the first of which is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, which is like the first, is love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives him all of the people word. I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it up. The things that are directed towards people. Gives him the people-directed commands. Okay, so how are you going to do with these things? And the young man said to him, piece of cake. No problem at all. How do we know that? The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? What do I have to do now, Jesus? What is it? Now I want you to see, here comes the hard saying. Here comes the tough part, especially for this rich young ruler. And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, and the inference there is if you want to have eternal life, if you want to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, if you want to be like God, if you ever want to be in his presence, if you want to go to heaven, go. Sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And when he heard this, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We get to the meat of the matter. What, what's the longing of your heart today? Where is your heart? Is there something that you possess? Is there something that you have? Is there anything in your life that if you were asked to give it up, you would have to think about it for a while? And the answer might potentially be no. 
Is there something that is competing with the place that God alone is supposed to have in your life? In this young man's case, and in the case of an awful lot of people in our country, in our world, but very specifically here in America, there is something that's in the way. And it's wealth. And the accumulation of wealth. And the things that gain wealth. So you could put in there your career, education, all those things that assemble together to equal the attaining of wealth. Jesus now addresses that. But people take this in such a way that they go, well, God just wants everybody to be broke. God wants everyone to just give away their stuff. Because you can't be rich and enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we covered that part of it a few weeks ago. But there's another truth here. And that is, is God actually anti-wealth? Is God anti-good things? Is God anti-blessing? Does God actually not like people who are rich? Is that who God is? Let's find out today. Jesus knew this man's heart. And he knows your heart. And that is really the issue. Notice how this young man responds. He said, well, I'm a commandment keeper. Now remember, this rich young ruler is Jewish. And so since he was about 12 years old, really before that, but since he was 12, he went to religious school, no doubt was taught by the rabbis, all of the commandments, had them memorized. So he is absolutely correct in his assessment of his own life, his own being, I've been keeping those particular commands since my youth. The problem is, that's not the problem. Because no matter how much he might have declared that he kept all those commands, the fact of the matter is, he had had not actually kept them perfectly. Not even one of them. And the reason we know this is that Jesus goes on further to say, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. If you look after a woman in lust, you've committed adultery. If you desired someone's things, you've been covetous, you've stolen them in your heart. There's an issue with the heart of man. The issue is not always the, the, the commission of the sin the issue is your heart's propensity to go the wrong way instead of the right way. You see, we do pretty good very often when we're forced into situations to where we can be punished for doing the wrong thing. And that is effectively what the law provided for. The law said, if you do this, this will happen. And so people kept the law because they didn't want to be punished. They did not keep the law because they wanted so much to please God. They just didn't want to get in trouble. Kind of like your kids, amen? You give your kids some rules. You say, this you cannot do in our house. And they keep that not because they actually want to keep it, 
but because they know they'll get in trouble if they do it. That's a hard issue. That's what is at issue for all of us. We all try to be commandment keepers very often. I want you to notice that Jesus intentionally takes the easiest ones of the commands to keep because the first five are all pointed towards your relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You'll not make any graven idols. How many people, you know, you probably don't have any statues of Molech or Ashtaroth in your homes, I would imagine. There might be a few of you who culturally have maybe a Buddha or something like that in your home. But I doubt very seriously that most of you bow down to those statues that are in your house. Maybe you have something left over from a trip that you took. And to someone else, it might be a god. It's not to you. But how many Americans bow down to their bank accounts? How many Americans worship? I can tell you, because I saw a guy do it yesterday. He worshipped his car. It was a hundred degrees, and he's outside with one of those duster things, dusting it off. It's like, you are nuts. It's just dust. How many of us actually do have a foreign god in our house? Some of us foreign gods are, I hate to say it, because I can tell by the attendance on Sundays, your foreign god is the Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> right? Maybe it's some other sports team. You see, Jesus is actually getting at the heart of the issue. Oh yeah, you keep the commands. Notice how this man responds to Jesus. All these things I've kept since my... What am I still lacking, really, is the question. What else do I have to do? What do I have to do, Jesus? You see, he looked at his own life as being perfect. There's the problem, isn't it? You see, the way we do that is we compare ourselves to other imperfect people. Anybody notice that you can always find somebody worse than you? Anybody notice that we gravitate towards comparing ourselves to people that we automatically are better than at something? That, by the way, is the source of when you, maybe you're out on the basketball court, you don't challenge somebody that can dunk when you're five foot seven. You challenge somebody who's your size. Maybe you have a high degree of, you watch them shoot, they can't score. You see, so we're, we gravitate towards a winning situation. In that case, this young man says, what do I have to do? Give me something that I can actually accomplish so that I will have eternal life. And Jesus is going to point out to him the problem 
uh, that this rich young ruler has is he did not have and he needed eternal life. And there was no way to get it unless he was willing to give up what he needed to give up. He couldn't have it his way. It was not possible for him to keep where he was and gain eternal life. And in fact, if you look at your Bibles, the Apostle Paul so buries this in the truth of the book of Romans that the first full three chapters of the book of Romans is basically Paul telling mankind, you guys are a mess. You're all in trouble. Matter of fact, the wrath of God is going to be poured out on all unrighteousness. And then here's what happens to us. What's unrighteousness? What's sin? And see, we go down our list. I don't steal from people. You know, I don't have a problem with adultery. I don't do any of that. And then we just kind of skip over the bitter, the unforgiving. The hate-filled. Here's one for you. The vain. The self-seeking. You see, all those things are sin. So if you look at what do I have to do, and you compare yourself to other people, I didn't steal anybody's car today. I didn't rip off my neighbor But man, I hate my sister in my heart. I've been angry and bitter with my spouse for years. You see, to gain eternal life, those sins have to be forgiven. And there is nothing you can do. There is something that will happen to you if you are saved you'll have a way to deal with those things called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to give you a little bit of check when you start hating your brother in your heart. It's going to remind you, Jeff, that's not who you are in Jesus. But until you get to that place that you're willing to surrender all, there's not a chance that you can be good enough. There is the issue. So Jesus lays down the law for him. So let's really look at the issue here, if you want to look at it. Because the law always precedes grace. Remember that. That's why Paul does that in the book of Romans. He says, look, here's the problem. Here's what sin actually looks like. And by the way, in all of those lists, whether it's there in Romans chapter 1, very specifically, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or the book of Galatians, as Paul lays out all these things. He's not naming every sin. He's just giving sins that are indicative of the condition of the human heart. And so Jesus takes the focus off this young man's felt religious duties that he was accomplishing. There's our problem. When I actually allow God to examine my heart and I agree with him, I'm a sinner. And I need a savior. I need a redeemer. I need to confess. I need to admit my spiritual poverty. 
This is a sensitive nerve for people. You know, one of the craziest things is that most difficult thing for the average person to admit is that they are actually a sinner. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. I go, well, do you know that you need Jesus? They go, no, I don't. And they'll tell me why they don't need Jesus. I had a conversation with my own father. And I asked him, I said, Dad, do you, do you believe you're going to heaven? And he said, oh, yes. And I asked him why. I'm a good person. That was his answer. And I looked at him and said, Dad, are you good enough? Because the standard is not the comparison. By comparison to normal people, you are a good man. You're a good man. But you're not good enough to get into heaven. And he asked almost the exact same question. By the way, he does know Jesus now. Hallelujah. After 30 years of sharing Jesus with him. But when you, when you get to that place, you get to the excuse. What's your excuse? For this guy, we find out what his excuse is. The property that he believed he owned, the money he believed was his, actually owned him. He was governed by his things. His possessions possessed him. They were his God. By the way, that's why Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. And he used possessions as the example. You can't serve God and mammon. That's a problem for us. The good news is God is patient. He examines our spiritual condition and he gives us ways for us to see where we're at with him. You know how I know where I'm at with God? When he says, Jeff, I want this from you, I don't argue with him. I don't go, oh, God. I mean, come on. You know I need that, and then you know what I find out? No, I don't actually need that. I want that. It's very different. Needs and wants are not the same thing especially in this country. Amen? There's a lot of things that people want. I'm surprised nobody has come up with a store and just called it Stuff Mart. Just go get stuff. Just because it's on sale doesn't mean you need it. And I'm trying to be a little humorous because we think that way, don't we? It's like, oh, it's 40% off. I got, oh, I should get that. I'm saving 40%. What you don't realize is you don't need to spend the 60 either. You don't actually need another pair of shoes. You don't really need that. You see, wants and needs are not the same thing. This young man was struggling 
Not, his needs were more than met. But he wanted something from life. And the truth is, he was never going to find it in his possessions. Ultimately, what happened was he had to be confronted with the fact that he actually had too much of himself. That was the issue. There was just a little too much of him and not enough of the Lord Jesus was in his life. And in fact, he didn't have the part of the Lord that he needed, which is a relationship with him. So Jesus makes an attempt to get him to see the problem. If you want to be perfect, notice verse 21, sell what you have. And immediately this young ruler's heart sunk. Boom. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. Scripture doesn't say that's what he was thinking or that's what he said, but you know from his reaction, that's what he was thinking. He may have actually even said it, just wasn't recorded. It's like, okay, give me something else. I, I, well, I'll give away some of it. No, I want you to give what you have. Go sell it and give it to the poor. I want you to store up treasure in heaven. This is a trust issue, isn't it? Church, if you want to know how you're doing with the Lord, you can see it really easily in your habit of giving. It's easy to give when we have. It is not easy to give when we don't. And when we don't and we still give, we're saying, Jesus, this was always yours. I have no right to it. I want you to have it, and you give me what I need. The problem is, we look at it as, that's what I want. Our needs turn into wants, and before we know it, we have the two things confused. He needed to understand the true value. There's a story that we find in Luke's gospel in chapter 19 of a rich man, a very rich man. His name was Zacchaeus. And the exact same situation existed in Zacchaeus' life, except his response was completely different. Jesus called him, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly And Zacchaeus said to Jesus, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back to him four times as much. And Jesus told him, today salvation has come to your house. Why? Not because he gave away half of his possessions, but because his heart was in the right place. He said, Lord, if you want it, you can have it. If you need it, it's yours. It was always yours anyway. The issue here is stewardship. I am a steward of the things of God. If you ask me, do I own a house? I go, Jesus does. Do you own a car? Jesus does. 
And I'm not being trite and I'm not being silly. Literally, the truck that I drive is Jesus's truck. The house we abide in is Jesus's house. The money in the bank account is Jesus's money. This church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything on this earth, the earth and the fullness of it, Scripture declares, is the Lord's. The que- yeah, amen. And the question is, do you try and hang on to stuff that doesn't belong to you? When you do, it becomes a God. Now it rules you. It's like, Jesus, I will do anything except. And so Jesus reminds him, That's why you can tell that you're not where you need to be. That's why you're not perfect. Because you actually do have another God. In this young man's case, it was money. Now here's the problem if you extrapolate this out into some other thinking. All of a sudden it's like, well, if I just sell everything, I'll be fine with God. If I just give away all I have to the poor, if I'm broke for the rest of my life, then surely I'll get into heaven. Or, in fact, I've had people tell me, because they're broke, because they're walking around in in some state of constant need, unable to help anyone else, because they're poor, they must have God's favor. That also is not true. And that really becomes part of this hard saying. It's not about you being broke. It's not about you not having anything. It's about you having the right things the right way. So which is it? Is it poverty or is it riches that we're supposed to have as the family of God? Easy word for you to remember, only has four letters. Both. We have to have poverty of heart, and we will have the riches we need. We have to have poverty of heart, deep need for Christ, and he will give us all that we have need of according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, provisionally, God will give you, when you're right with the Lord, then you have what you need. I want to turn your attention to Proverbs 30. If you want to turn there, you can. We'll be in it for just a few minutes. There is a humble prayer. This is a proverb written by an unknown man, a sage, a wise person named Agur. And he writes this in verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Now this was written almost a thousand years before Jesus. Anybody remember what part of the Lord's Prayer is? Give me this day my daily bread. Amen? And deliver me from temptation. You see, God nowhere promises to give us everything we want. He promises to give us all that we need. And when we handle what we need, he very often entrusts to us more because he knows he has our heart. 
And when he has our heart, he can entrust in stewardship to you greater things, knowing that they are still in his grasp, and you will use them as he sees fit. So if he asks you to take care of somebody's house payment for them, you'll do it. If he asks you to give to the poor, you'll do it. If he asks you to make sure that the food pantry is full, you'll do it when he asks you to tithe to give that tenth portion, the first fruits of your livelihood, you'll do it. When he asks you to give towards that missions adventure, you'll do it. When he asks you to give his things to who he wants, they're still his and you'll do it. You're not trusting in them. You trust in the Lord, believing that if you need to have that back, he's able to give it to you again. And church, he's able to give it to you a thousandfold. I've watched him throughout my life do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that I could ever ask or think in every imaginable way. Pastor Chuck used to say, you can't outgive God. Amen. You can't. And so the issue here is not poverty or riches. It's are you content? This is the issue that the Apostle Paul addressed in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice how Agur understood this. Because he knew money wasn't actually the issue. If I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? Anybody ever met someone like that? I have. I've met people who are trusting in their riches to get them into heaven. What what do I need God for? Look what I have. Notice the second part of this there in verse 9. And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. You see, extreme wealth and extreme poverty both have their issues. And so the issue isn't you need to be poor and the issue isn't you need to be rich. The issue is you need to be walking in the center of God's will wherever he has you. Content. Not complaining. Neither of those two extremes will ever provide you what you think they will. Every year we would... We'd have missions week at the Bible college and students would come and after, usually it was very often this would be their first longer term missions trip because we'd take them generally for two weeks somewhere. And they'd go on the mission field and they'd see whatever was going on in the country that we went to very often somewhere in Latin America, maybe in Asia, and they'd come back. And there would invariably be a handful of students that would sell their car and empty their bank account and all kinds of stuff. And they would head off to the mission field. They normally came back in about a month. They weren't actually called to the mission field. Their heart was stirred by the poverty of the country that they went to. 
God is not calling everyone onto the mission field. God is calling those whom he has chosen to go to the mission field onto the mission field. And so there are people that he wants to, you need to trim your life down a little bit because I'm sending you someplace. That stuff is going to be meaningless. It's going to be a hindrance. But there are also people like we have many in this church when we tell someone that we are going to build a field hospital in Moldova that they donate to that end and that's already working today. You see, so the riches can be good and the poverty can be bad and vice versa. If you use your riches for you, it's not really benefiting the kingdom. If God asks you to be poor, he can use that for his glory. But he may not ask you to be poor. He may actually ask you to have some serious monetary ability so you can help other people. So be careful how you interpret these hard sayings. I believe for most people, as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, be moderate in all things. A certain amount of wealth is necessary in our world. And the only reason for any believer to be poor is because God's called you into a place of poverty. But don't put that on other people. God's calling for you and God's calling for someone else may be two different things. The truth of the matter is salvation is the greatest need that mankind has. As Agur considers both these extremes, poverty and riches, he sees each of them having a certain level of seductive nature. Sometimes poor people can be just as arrogant as rich people. Well, you know, I don't have anything, so, you know, I'm obviously doing good with the Lord. That may or may not be true. Maybe you do have a life of moral integrity. Maybe you've kept a lot of commands since your youth. What God is asking is, do I have all of you? When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, when his body was broken and his blood was shed, it was to purchase all of you. Not part of you. Not just your church time. Your whole life. The Apostle Paul so understood this, he said, my life is now hidden in him. And the life that I live, I live because of and for him. Church. We're guaranteed our daily bread. Paul would write to Timothy there in 1 Timothy 6, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. For those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires and plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money. The love of money. Be very careful. It doesn't say money. It says the love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil. If you love money more than you love God, you can plan on problems. But you can have a lot of money and really love God and actually be used mightily of the Lord. And you can be very poor and be used mightily of the Lord. That's the truth. And if you are being used of the Lord, then the life that you now live is for him. He purchased your life with his own broken body and his own shed blood. He said, you're mine, Jeff. I have a plan for your life. You should have received the elements of communion when you came in, if you'd take those out. Pull that first seal and expose the bread. If you don't have them, would you raise your hand and we'll make sure and get you the elements of communion. Just slip your hand up. Remember this supper is for believers. So this is the church celebrating the fact that Jesus actually purchased our lives back from the debt of sin. That was this young man's problem, right? He said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, I don't want you to have any other God before me. He actually really is referring to the first commandment. Young man, you have a God. And that God is your money. I want you to get rid of your God. And I want you to love me supremely. So if you want to have eternal life, I have paid for your sin. I have laid my life down. That's what's going to happen. Jesus is very near the time that he would go to the cross. He says, within a day, I'm going to give my life a ransom for your soul. My body will be broken and my blood will be shed for you. But if you're willing to give up your life, I'll gladly give up my life for you. So if you're willing to give up your money, that's just simply a sign that the money is less important to you than me. When Jesus introduced the disciples to the first communion, he repeated a statement twice. He said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And he began with a loaf of bread, which he seated with his disciples, and Judas was next to him. And I want to draw your attention to one very simple thing. Jesus actually said, the hand of my betrayer is he that dips his bread with me. Judas was sitting next to Jesus. And Judas, from there, went out and hung himself. Jesus gave Judas an opportunity, the same opportunity he gives this young man. What are you going to trade for me? For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver and a little bit of fame. And he realized it was a bad deal. And he took his own life. I pray there's nothing in your life that you would trade for Jesus. Not money, not power, not fame. Because it's a bad trade. And so Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. 
And he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus. See, this rich young ruler didn't know all that money that he had wasn't as valuable as he thought because the most precious substance that mankind would ever see on this earth was the blood of Jesus it wasn't gold it wasn't silver it wasn't coins it wasn't real estate It wasn't homes, it wasn't cities, it wasn't livestock. It was the blood of our King Jesus that dripped onto the ground at Golgotha. And so after supper, Jesus took the cup, and after he himself drank from it, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. My blood, remember what this young man asked for, What do I need to do to be saved? My blood shed for the remission of your sin. As often as you drink from it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. That if we will believe in your name, that you are God's son, that the Holy Spirit by power raised you from the dead, will be saved. And that that blood would then answer this young man's heart's cry, what must I do? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Your broken body and your shed blood paid the price that we could never pay. We bless your name. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we ask, Lord, that you'd make us fit for your kingdom's purposes. Lord, bless us as we go out into our world with that message. Lord, that you love us. You love this world and you came to save it. Lord, speak to us and speak through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.